And God, that is our hope today. Our hope is in your faithfulness, your promises. Because God, we, we, uh, we're so faithless. <laughs> and we are prone to break our promises, even with our best intentions, God. Our selfishness, our sinfulness, our brokenness. Slip out or run out. God, I thank you that one of your promises is that if we will turn back to you, you forgive us, you cleanse us, and you make us new again. God, how, how can we not worship? So I pray that this morning, now as we continue to gather together, that your word would once again refresh and renew us, restore us, and then send us to soften our hearts, God, open our ears, quicken our minds, that we might be wholly attentive to your word and to your work this day. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Good morning. So my name is Suzanne Vogel. I'm the lead pastor here at The Bridge. I want to welcome those of you who are watching with us online and all of you in the room. We have been in a series we're calling The Life of Bridge Building or Bridge Builders. And we've been looking at the second half of Acts thinking about what it means to be people who build bridges, not walls and not armies, but bridges. And so I want to invite Mike Conlon to come up. We are uh, moving forward in the story, and we're starting in Acts 11. And so if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up and follow along as, Acts, as Mike reads for us. A reading from Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 30. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did 
sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mike. So one of the things I like to do in my free time is listen to podcasts. Uh, I don't know how many of you enjoy doing that, but I listen to one that often talks about big picture trends that are happening in the church. And so this week uh, on my Sabbath, I was listening to an interview of a man named Michael Davis. Now, I have to admit, when I listened to this, started listening to this podcast, I wasn't expecting that they were going to talk about something called the great de-churching. Now, this is positive excitement for my day off, an interview about the great de-churching, because according to their research, more than 40 million adults have left the church in the last 25 to 30 years. Now, just to put that in pers- the scale of that into perspective, that's five New York cities have left, adults have left the church, and um, what they de- describe as de-churched is going from attending twice a month to attending not at all, or less than one time a year. Now, for, uh, to put this into a visual reality, this graph shows it pretty dramatically. Um, you probably can't read the small lines. All you need to know is the top purple line. That's the number of people who are attending church regularly. The yellow line, guess what that number is? That's the number of people who are no longer attending church. And all you need to know is the ways they are doing this, right? Um, So the number of people weekly in church is going down dramatically, and the number of people who have checked out of church has increased dramatically. And I don't know about you, but I looked at those lines, and I started thinking about people, people I love, people maybe you love, right? I was thinking about people who've left the church because they got wounded or disillusioned or people who fell out of the habit and have never gotten back or people who slipped away during a divorce or a major illness. And I gotta be honest, I was pretty, de- pretty sad and pretty uh, deflated in some ways. I almost turned the podcast off. But I'm glad I did not because at the end, towards the end of the interview, Michael Davis said something that I will hold for a long time. He said, the great de-churching is an invitation for us to get outside the church and start being, or get outside the church building and start being the church in the world around us. He said, the answer is not complicated, it's just not easy. And I thought, ah, yep, That's the truth. The truth of the matter is that the church was never intended to be a building. It was intended to be a people. And this morning, I think we see another example of the ways that the inertia, sometimes of the familiar and the building, can keep pulling us back. And so I want us to look at Barnabas, because Barnabas is an incredible picture of someone who recognizes that the call is to go and then to keep going and then to keep going a little more, all right? So can you stay with me for a fast? I'm going to talk as fast as I can. 12 minutes, I promise, all right? Somebody set a clock. That was dangerous. That happened right there. All right, we're awake, right? 
First, I need to give you a very fast history lesson. Sometimes we miss the drama of the Bible because we don't know the history, all right? So for centuries, thousands of years, the Jewish people, the hub of worship was the temple, and specifically the temple in Jerusalem. That was where everything happened. Good, God-fearing Jews always returned to the temple, even if they were scattered out into the world. At least once a year, they would make a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem because that's where God met them. It's where their friendships and their relationships and their identity were grounded. It was the place where they met God and God met them. And they were reminded who they were and who they belonged to. I bet money they had their own seat too back in that day. That place where God found them, right? But Jesus comes along and Jesus seems to think that the temple is not going to be a forever thing. In fact, Jesus says things like the temple's going to be destroyed. But don't worry because God's coming and he's going to actually move in with you personally. He says things like, oh, by the way, I'm going to need you to leave Jerusalem. I'm going to need you to go, to go to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. No longer is the hub a building and a geographic place. Now, here's the trouble. Change is hard. Can I get an amen? to that one. I feel like that's just true. Change is hard, even when we want to do it. And so here's the thing. They had a hard time getting outside the familiar. We read, uh, we read today in the early chapters of Acts that they were still going to the temple daily. They were still hubbed in Jerusalem. And in fact, it wasn't until Stephen was killed and persecution broke out that some of them reluctantly started leaving and going other places. But it's interesting. If you read Acts chapter 8, it says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except who? The apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. What does that tell you? The people who were the closest to Jesus, the ones who walked with him, talked with him, lived with him, ate with him, they're hanging out in Jerusalem still instead of going and being the first people on the front lines. Why do you think that is? I think they stay put because consciously or unconsciously, they are still working out the mindset that everything revolves around a place and a building. And so they keep holding still. Now, I can't blame them, okay? The temple was familiar. It was comforting. It was their spiritual and emotional home. They knew the rituals. They knew the rhythms. It's like returning over and over again to your favorite restaurant or your favorite fishing spot or longing for your favorite foods. There is something good about the familiar. But if we aren't careful, it can put us in ruts and keep us in boxes. And it can keep us from doing the very thing we were called to do. 
But I wonder if actually the American church is still doing the same thing. We keep trying to convince people to come to a building, right, where God really resides. We keep asking professionals to stay and make it happen. And we cling to the rituals and the practices that comfort us. I do this. Can I tell you, I'm a child of the 80s, all right? I, I love some of the old praise music. I have a hard time listening to the new stuff sometimes because we have a tendency to want to keep coming back to the places where God met us when we were young. And so I think that's what's happening when we opened into Acts 11. But here's the thing. God had something different in mind. God, once again, sent the Spirit out running ahead of the apostles, and it was carried by everyday people. Do you notice that? They weren't even named. Just people from Cyprus and Cyrene. And they got to Antioch, this multicultural, multi, uh, multicultural, multi-ethnic city, largest one of the third largest in the whole area, and they start sharing the good news. First with the Jews, because what do we do? We default to the familiar. But then pretty soon, some of them are like, wait a minute, other people need to hear this. The Greeks around us, our neighbors need to hear, the people we're working need to hear about Jesus. And pretty soon, something beautiful is happening. So much so that Jerusalem hears about it, and what do they do? They say, we probably should make sure this is okay. So they send Barnabas. Now, it turns out Barnabas is the perfect man for the job. You know why? Well, a couple things. First of all, we found out in Acts 4 that Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, okay? So he's originally named Joseph. His name is changed to Barnabas. Well, he, that means son of encouragement. We're introduced to him because he sells his field and brings it to the community to share. But the thing I really want you to notice is that phrase, a Levite from Cyprus. Have you ever noticed that? First of all, let's take the fact that he's a Levite. That means that he grew up either working in the temple or one of his parents or grandparents worked in the temple. He is a Jew's Jew. He understands the importance of the temple, and he understands the importance of the familiar and the sacred. All right? So he's a Levite, but where's he from? Cyprus, which means he actually didn't grow up in Jerusalem. He's a little bit of an outsider. He has a foot in two worlds. Do you see that? In the temple and outside Jerusalem. And so of all the people who can go to Antioch and check out what's going on, Barnabas is the right person. He has a track record of generosity, and he shows it now, again, that generosity by being willing to uproot his life in Jerusalem and head all the way up to Antioch. Now, that looks like this far on your screen. Do you know how, anybody want to guess how far that is on a map? 300 miles. That's the distance between here and Jerusalem. Or, I mean, I'm sorry, here in Minneapolis. <laughs> Woo! 
Here in Minneapolis, only by the way, they didn't have cars. What did they do? They walked. They took a donkey. Do you know how long it takes to walk 300 miles? Weeks. So Barnabas heads out on a long journey to Antioch. He gets there. He checks things out. He sees what God is doing. He has eyes to see the fresh work of God. And he affirms and encourages what he discovers, recognizing that God is at work outside Jerusalem. Now, he could have been the superstar at Antioch. Did anybody notice that? He gets there. He discovers that God's working. He's teaching. More people are coming. Here's another opportunity for him to be at the center. But what does he do? He goes to Tarsus. He leaves again, moves again, decenters himself again to go to Tarsus to find Saul. That's another, oh, that one's about 100 miles. Goes and gets Saul. They come back, and then it says they spend another year at Antioch teaching. Do you know that when Barnabas left Jerusalem, do you think he knew he was signing up for a two-year gig? That's at least how long he was gone. Think about the generosity of that. Would you be willing? See, Barnabas serves as a bridge between Jerusalem, Antioch, and Saul. He serves as a bridge between the old and the new. He moves, he moves, he moves again. He invests. His faith paves the way for practices in the temple to be melded with practices in unfamiliar places. He's humble enough to let go of his position in the old ways, and he is humble enough to invite new leaders into the new ways. Barnabas, over and over again, keeps putting other people first. Now, I wonder if God isn't inviting us to something similar today. I wonder if the Spirit is coaxing us out of our building and into our neighborhoods where all kinds of people need and are at work experiencing the life of Jesus. And what if you are the perfect person for the job? What if you, who has a foot in the church and a foot in your neighborhood, a foot in your church or a foot in your workplace, what if you are the right person because you have relationships built and you can be a bridge between the church and your sports league and the kingdom of God? Are there bridges that only you can build? Could you be generous with your time and keep going to meet people where they are instead of demanding they come here. See, we keep wanting people to come here, and some will, and it is important for us to gather. We're going to talk more about that in the weeks ahead, but make no mistake, this is building is not the church. You are the church, and Barnabas understood that. So I want to just ask, who are you nudging, who's God nudging you to pursue? I'm over my 12 minutes, and I know it, but I'm landing the plane. I promise. Who do you need to keep your eyes open for? 
You know, this morning, we're celebrating Worldwide Communion. And it's beautiful because we have the perfect example of this in front of us. The couple who are leading up this portable MRI program, let's call them the Johnsons. I can't tell you their real name because of their own safety and security. He, Mr. Johnson, grew up in India, the child of missionary parents, she in Madagascar. They both came to the States where they met at college, fell in love, got married. He got a medical degree, she a background in business, and they felt God calling them back to the mission field. So they went back to India where they stayed for a couple decades, had five children, now have five great-grandchildren, And they are about at the age of life when you would expect them to retire, either back to the United States where there's better golf courses, as some of you can attest to, or to plant in India where they have deep roots. But the Spirit kept nudging them. And she had one foot in India and one foot in Madagascar where she grew up. So two years ago, they moved to Madagascar. One of the least economically developed countries in the UN, a land where there's deep famine raging. They left their comfort zone and went again. And now she works in one of the worst prisons in, they think, Africa. He's training doctors in Madagascar training them how to use the latest technology to save lives. And that's where we come in. You come in. See, we can add to that ripple effect. One portable ultrasound costs only $3,000. We're hoping to send two this morning. And so I think it's a good reminder that we weren't created to live in fortresses because of people like Barnabas and the Johnsons and, well, let's be honest, Jesus, we will celebrate communion this morning at the same time people in Africa celebrate communion. At the same time people in Honduras celebrate communion. And our brothers and sisters in Asia and China and Madagascar We gather because God's love is for the whole world and he keeps sending. And in Jesus, he sent the perfect person. One foot in humanity, one foot in divinity. Who looked at those early disciples and said, you're going to need to be reminded that I'm here. And that I go with you. And so gather regularly. Take and eat the bread that I give because it will remind you that my body was broken for you so that you could know me. And then I'm going to ask you to take and drink because this is the cup of the new covenant and when you drink it, you'll be reminded that I loved you so much I came after you. I went the distance so that you would know forgiveness and mercy.